Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily, uh, and I'm a volunteer here at Reunion. Um, But I'm also a therapist throughout the week. Oh, hello, I'm loud today. That's good, because I'm a quiet person. Uh, We actually have a lot of mental health professionals here today, so shout out to all of us. Um, Yeah, give yourselves a round of applause. Um, But it's a perfect combination to be a volunteer and a therapist, because we're talking about identity formation today. Uh, We're in our cultivating series where we're looking at five values um, that we want to do well, both as a church and individually. Uh, So we started off with hospitality, Um, now we're in identity formation, Uh, and then to follow we're going to be looking at justice and mercy, covenant community, and generosity. Uh, But to develop or to look at identity is to ask a lot of questions, which is basically what I tell all of my clients. I don't have any answers, but I have lots and lots of questions. So who are we? You know, who is Reunion? Who is the church that you maybe are visiting here today? Who am I? Who am I called to be? Why are we here in New York City, in a dance studio of all places? Um, And then why am I the individual here on this earth? What am I meant to do? Uh, And so the main text we'll be looking at today attempts to tackle some of these questions. Um, But I just came back from a retreat, and something that I found really awesome was that every time we uh, wanted to honor somebody, uh, it would end in a standing ovation. So the coordinator, the people who would clean, we would like clap and then all of a sudden everybody starts standing because we want to honor the work that they've done. Um, And I just love the idea of standing together to honor God for his word. Um, So I'm about to extend that invitation. You don't have to stand just yet um, to anyone who's able. Uh, But I also want to point out that as preachers, we uh, tend to stand over the congregation, which I have a lot of thoughts about. It's an interesting power dynamic. Um, So when I extend this invitation, I also want us to come together as one in the same posture whether that be physical or spiritual, if you do need to sit today, to welcome whatever the Holy Spirit wants to deposit in us today. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. And the teaching text today comes from Romans 8, 10 to 17. And it reads, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we must also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together. You can sit too if you want to pray, sitting down. 
Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given us, for the sunshine, God, after so much rain. How that reflects our lives sometimes, God. We feel like we are stuck in a storm. Um, and then the sun comes out and we can remember your goodness, Lord. God, I pray that our hearts may be open, our minds may be open to receive what it is that you have for us today, Lord. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be pleasing to you, God. And Lord, just have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I grew up in a very conservative home. Growing up, I didn't listen to what we called in my family secular music, which basically is like music that you wouldn't find on Caleb. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember Valentine's Day, uh, I think it was first grade, someone handed me a Valentine's Day card and it was this like blonde woman and it was cool because it was like holographic or I think that like shiny material. Uh, and it was this, you know, I said this already, blonde woman in a red tight like suit. And I was just like, foolishly, who is that? Like, why is this person on my Valentine's Day card? I don't know if anyone can guess who it is. Yes, 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 yes. So everyone is like, you don't know who Britney Spears is? I'm like, no, my mom doesn't let me listen to that music. Um, but so part of growing up that way was embarrassing. But um, another part of growing up in a conservative household meant that I only wore skirts for 10 years of my life. I'm actually on brand for that time <laughs> in my life. Uh, it made going to the park very difficult as a teenager. Uh, but I'd still be in these streets, let me tell you. I would go on hikes in skirts. I would jump into lakes in skirts. <laughs> um, but because you see, I came from a culture that really believed in protecting our bodies uh, and upholding a certain standard of purity. And parts of this was really good for me. Uh, when I came back to my faith in high school, I was really struggling with who I was, with who I should be a part of. Um, and this culture gave me such a sense of belonging. I, I have this picture of me uh, at the beginning of my skirt wearing days, dress wearing days. I love this picture, guys. So I'm in Ecuador. <laughs> I'm in Ecuador, and um, we went like biking that day. We were hiking that day, and then randomly we come across the road and there was a zip line because that's Ecuador for you. And you can maybe tell I'm wearing a dress. I'm wearing leggings underneath, but I am wearing that dress. I'm working it. Um, well, at least I didn't think that at the time. But, but I was really proud of myself, and you can see the joy in my face, because um, I was representing. I was representing my culture, I was representing my church. Um, something else that would always be really cool is when I saw someone else walking down with a knee-length denim skirt, I was like, yes, you know you are Pentecostal, just as I am. And it's like, kind of like getting a head nod from someone popular at school. It's like, real recognizes real. Um, but... As with all things, I didn't think this through. That's going to be on there for a little bit, so we're just going to, I'm going to ignore it. Um, but as with all things, there is a downside to this type of life. Um, when you center your identity around protecting the flesh, you become really closed and you become really defensive and you lose sight of what's really important. So when I was reading the text that we all kind of read together over and over this week, I kept being struck by this word flesh. Because whenever I hear the word flesh in the Bible, I like tense up and I brace myself and I'm ready for judgment. I'm ready for hellfire. Um, so before we get into the meat of this text, no pun intended, um, I want to give us some context into what we're really being invited to consider in Romans 8. 
Uh, and we're going to talk about flesh. Uh, but I sense that in our rush to tell people how not to sin, we overlook the goodness of why Jesus is inviting us into a sinless life to begin with. Uh, so I want to start there. The promise of freedom and of healing that Jesus is, is inviting us into. Um, so as a church, we have looked at Jesus' life together for almost two years. Um, and if you're new to our church, don't worry. I'm about to catch you up in like 30 seconds what we did in two years' time. Uh, so going through Mark, we intimately walked with Jesus as he fed thousands. We listened to him heal the paralyzed, heal those afflicted with leprosy. We watched him walk on water, and we wept as he died on the cross for me and for you. And for two years, we closely examined both the miracles and the suffering of Jesus. And yet sometimes I personally confined Jesus to a time capsule. Do y'all remember those? Um, in my day, it was like a cardboard box where you put like letters to your like crush at the time and different, you know, Britney Spears Valentine's Day cards, things to capture what happened during that year. Uh, and so I do that to Jesus around Easter, around Christmas. I'll open up the time capsule and cry or laugh at the good old times, but then I close it back up. Uh, and I keep Jesus in the first century and I go on with my 21st century life. Romans 8 dares to bring Jesus to all generations throughout uh, all the centuries, and he challenges us to be defined by his life, his death, and his resurrection. What do I mean by that? Well, this is a state of living that I think everyone can relate to. I think it's the next one. Thank you. I'm sure all of us can recall times in our lives when our minds and hearts have been darkened by clouds of depression anxiety, or grief. You know what it's like to not want to get out of bed, sit in the dark. You may also know what it's like to feel alone in a room full of people, hiding tears when everyone else is laughing. And while we can accept that Jesus healed the sick, we're not sure if those miracles actually still apply to us today. We're not sure if Jesus cares about those dark clouds. Here's what the message version of Romans 8 says in response to these doubts. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful dilemma is resolved. And we're going to stop there because I want to know what Paul means by this faithful dilemma. The NIV version uses the word condemnation. What do you picture when you hear that word? Just take a second. Condemnation. When you Google search condemnation, this is one of the first images to pop up. Hopefully I got the order right. Yeah. Um, the synonyms for condemnation are criticism, disapproval, damnation. My friend's a physical trainer, uh, and she's amazing. I love her. Uh, when I started my journey with her, my sister would make fun of me all the time because all I could do was lift an eight-pound weight. And no, you did not hear me correctly. I said weight, not weights. It was just one little baby eight-pound weight that I would do my little exercises with. Um, but then my trainer came along, and she helped me move my body. She helped me get out. Um, and major wins include learning to eat more protein, which is a thing that I never did, um, going to the gym by myself, which I'm still so proud of, uh, and going up to 15-pound weights, not weight, two um, and we have a really beautiful relationship, uh, but it is very intimate. 
uh, she is welcome to conversations about my body. And um, that's a very slippery slope, especially as a woman. I'm sure others can identify with that. Uh, and so for a long time, as we were building trust, I would project this judgmental voice onto her. Uh, we have weekly check-ins, uh, and that's how I'd show up. I was so ready for her to like point a finger at me. And she's a wonderful cheerleader. She always hypes me up. She's like, let's go, Emily. Look at what you did this week. Um, but I sometimes can't let that in. I don't know why. Uh, and so on one occasion, we're checking in, and I had just gone to the gym twice on my own, on my own, guys. And um, all I could focus on was the fact that I did not complete the fourth workout on the schedule. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's going to judge me. I didn't do all the check marks because she can see it too, which makes it even worse. Um, so there's just this like, empty checkbox. And she did end up screaming at me, but it wasn't because of me missing the workout. It was because I wasn't giving myself credit at all for any of the accomplishments that week. Emily, she loves doing that. She'll scream my name like that. Why are you afraid of me? I'm so proud of you. You're doing so well. Why are you afraid that I'm going to judge you? But this fear of judgment happens to us all the time on micro levels. Have you ever played a song that you're super into and when you play it for a friend, they just look at you funny? <laughs> or like my sister, why do you like that song? That's weird. She loves judging me on that. Or have you ever started a new job and you're sitting in your first meeting with your new boss and you're just like, oh my God, they're gonna regret hiring me, they're judging me right now. <laughs> that might just be an introvert problem, but um, I think we can all agree that no one really likes to feel condemned. No one likes to be judged. And sadly, Christians are known for condemning, which is ironic because Romans 8 literally starts off by saying there is no condemnation. Sorry, that's somewhere else. I messed up with the slides a little bit, but I appreciate you all so much over there at production. Um, but the reality is that we hear someone is Christian and we wonder, are they going to be safe? Is this a safe space for me to talk about what's going on in my life? Uh, or we worry that they might judge the fact that we haven't read our Bibles in months or we fear that we'll be shamed by others if we confess our questions or, God forbid, our doubts about Jesus. Um, Unfortunately, many of us are used to feeling like this when we're in church. We're shamed for our wrongdoings or for the things that we don't know. And the problem is this is not a holistic representation of what is meant by the word condemnation in this particular text. So when we talk about condemnation, the Greek word used here is katakrima. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but katakrima translates to the punishment following condemnation, not the condemnation itself the sentence after the trial. See, we get lost in condemning the verb that instead of ushering people away from condemnation, the noun, we get stuck in the act of judging others for a punishment that they can still turn away from. The punishment being referred to here is an eternity without Jesus. And stay with me here. I know what you must be imagining. I know everyone has seen the picket fence, the picket signs, not the picket fences, the picket signs um, screaming about hell, uh, graphic images, but that is such an oversimplification of condemnation. What Romans 8 is really illustrating is an eternity without Jesus that starts today, not after death, not just after death, and an eternity that looks like this. 
to our left. Hopelessness, always living under a dark cloud. And what Paul is saying here is that we were sentenced to a hopeless life after death and in life without true access to God and eternal salvation. But when Jesus entered the scene, something changed. This is what Romans 8 to 1 to 2 says. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. I don't know if y'all can picture that. If I had any skill with like graphic design, I would try and illustrate it for us all. But what I picture is this depressing, hopeless image of being stuck in a black cloud, uh, just being pushed away when Jesus comes like a strong wind and magnificently clears the air, pushing away our anxiety, our anger, our addictions, our despair. And that is good news for someone like me. I have struggled uh, with depression and anxiety for almost half of my life. I started having suicidal thoughts when I was around 15 years old. And I won't go too much into my story, but I share because I wonder, what does your black cloud look like? What is it that darkens your mind and snuffs out hope? Jesus cared enough for me, and I know he cares enough for you to give us access to a cloudless life. So two questions that you might be asking yourself right now. One, I don't know if I'm about everything this Jesus person has, said, has to say. How do I allow him to transform my life in this way? How do I start? Or I've been believing and walking with Jesus for three years now, but this is still my life. The black clouds feel endless. Why? So to the first question, I point us back to the invitation issued in Romans 8.1 to enter into Christ's state of being here for us. Jesus desires to be there for you, so much so he died on a cross, so he could intimately walk with you on this earth and beyond it. So if that's something you're curious about or even skeptical about, um, thank you for being here and listening. Uh, and we have a couple of opportunities. So on Thursday nights, we're meeting at our office um, for Alpha, where we're having conversations just like this about who Jesus is, why he died, what it means to pray. Um, it's not preachy. Uh, it really is just a conversation. Um, we watch some videos, we have some food, and you're invited to sign up and feel free to come talk to me or to Russell over there or to Christine over there and Marcellus who are also participating in it. Like Siona said, we are all going to stick around to talk. Well, maybe they didn't agree to that, but hopefully they'll be cool with it. <laughs> um, but today, you can also join us uh, in that corner over there where a couple of us will be praying. Uh, and we're happy to answer any questions that you might have. What about the second question that applies to really everyone here today? Why have my black clouds not cleared yet? Why is it so hard to live in a cloudless atmosphere? We're going to spend the rest of this time um, that we have here together attempting to answer this question. James Thurber writes, All people should strive to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. I'm going to put my therapist hat on real quick because this quote actually requires curiosity uh, and exploration. 
And that's really what identity formation is all about, being curious enough to look at all the little parts that make us up and decide what serves us and what doesn't. I'm Ecuadorian, and in Ecuador, we like our juices. My favorite juice happens to be maracuya, or passion fruit. If y'all were here earlier, y'all know this already. Um, and because this, I don't know, has anyone had passion fruit juice? Can we have a show of hands? Okay, y'all know. Um, I love it. And because I was younger, I thought it was so good, this juice is so amazing. I went, I scooped up with my spoon, and I ate a whole like content of it. Bad idea. Those seeds are super bitter. I don't know what this person is doing with this particular juice, but they're not gonna have a good time. Um, and so in Ecuador, you have one thing like always in your house, and it's a strainer. And so what you do is you take out the pulp, you take out the seeds, you put them into the blender, add some water, add so much sugar that I don't even wanna know, but it still tastes really good. Um, and then you take the contents of whatever's in your blender and you pass it through the strainer and all the bitter seeds get caught up and that's all you're left with and then you have wonderful tasting juice. And let's be honest, there are bitter parts to all of us that we would rather not incorporate into our identities. And exploratory questions act as the strainers that are the staple of the Ecuadorian household. They help us look closer at the seeds of bitterness and take away with them and do away with them. And so I'd like to invite everyone to take a deep breath. Maybe close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And I want you to consider these questions, but really consider them. What or who are you running to? What or who are you running from? Why are you running? You can open your eyes if you close them. But the answers to these questions are gonna tell us a lot about our identity, as well as the different sources of our suffering um, or our dark clouds. So the first question, what are you running to? Some of us are running towards worthiness. We are the people pleasers of our family, the reliable ones, the ones that never have do not disturb on our phones because someone might need us in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning. We have so much trouble saying no to people because what if they think we're mean? What if they think we're selfish? We're exhausted from our nine to five jobs and yet we still commit to hanging out with the friend who lives all the way in the Bronx. And the next day we have to wake up early because we're serving on worship team. We struggle with boundaries. And some of y'all are laughing or some of y'all are looking at me extra hard and I'm just not gonna look at you because you know that I just described myself. And the dark clouds for this group of people make us feel anxious. Um, anxious that we're gonna let people down, anxious that we're not worthy enough for them. Some of us, on the other hand, are running towards success. We are the overachievers, the ones who value productivity over presence. So we might not be at the family reunion, but we brought in that bacon, we made that money, and that's what matters. And the dark clouds for this group of people make us feel burnt out, and they make us feel imbalanced. And then the last example is some of us are running towards love. We are the romantics. We watch way too many rom-coms and we pour everything into dating or into our romantic partners. We tell ourselves that when we just find that person, all will be well, all our problems are gonna go away. I blame Disney for this one. It's the reason why I fit into this category sometimes as well. But the dark clouds here tell us we're unlovable. We're constantly reminding, being reminded of the fact that we're alone. 
And I know this is an oversimplification of what each of us are individually running to. We are so much more complex than these examples. But I chose them because I think we can all agree that these are pretty good things to run towards. I want to be successful. I want to be worthy. I want to be loved by somebody. But Paul, the author of Romans 8, would actually argue that they're not the main thing that we should be running towards. Romans 8 puts it like this, and I love how the message translation says it. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. We have an obligation to be led by the spirit of God as the children of God. In other words, we're meant to run towards Jesus. The things of the flesh in this case could be considered the examples that I just listed. Success, worthiness, love, outside of God, prioritized over God. All good things. Um, but Paul is arguing that they mean nothing if they're not in God. And when we run towards them as our main objective, we become ruled by them. And we develop unhealthy attachments to an outcome that is just impermanent and, just, and not satisfying. Romans 8.15 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. That is what running to things that are not God does. It makes us fear because we're desperately running towards something um, that won't actually fill the God-sized hole living in all of us. I see this all the time in the settings that I've worked in. People go through something traumatic, they experience uh, a loss, and they become depressed and they lose hope. Or they manage to find hope, but it's in something fragile like a romantic partner, a friend, or a job. And then that person or that institution inevitably lets them down or just isn't enough to sit with their pain 24-7 because no one is. And they're back where they started, hopeless. So when the word says here that you don't have to live in fear, it is because we have received something solid, something that doesn't waver. We might live in a broken world that is chaotic and is hopeless, but God has given us a spirit to depend on and to bring us unlimited goodness and inexhaustible comfort. C.S. Lewis says it best. Joy will not let people settle for anything less. The longing gives us the knowledge that there is something more, something better to life, even if we have never experienced it. This, is, this knowledge is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to point us to something better. We don't have to be afraid uh, that we'll never be worthy for those family members that are never satisfied to begin with, or um, that we won't be seen as successful to our friend group. We don't owe one red cent to this do-it-yourself life, because Jesus did it all for us when he died on the cross. What did he do? What does his death and resurrection mean? Well, we already looked at how his resurrection means no condemnation for us. It means we have a hope for a reprieve from our suffering while we're on this earth. And it means that we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit who points us to more and to greater. But when Jesus died, he also gave us a new identity. The passage we read reveals three things about who God has called us to be. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. What does this mean? 
One, we don't have to run to these things that the Bible says will actually lead to death because the Spirit gives us a path to life. It gives us hope for another way of life that isn't running towards values that ultimately are going to lead to disappointment. And then second, what I get most excited about is we carry within us the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. All of us are adults in the room, yes. And I don't think it fully lands as powerfully as it should. So I'm going to invite your five-year-old selves just for a moment to come out and consider that you are given the superpower of your favorite superhero. Just think about it for a minute. Five-year-old you gets Iron Man suit, a Green Lantern ring. Is it a Green Lantern ring? Green Lantern's ring? I don't know. A lightsaber or a wand from Hogwarts? That would be amazing. And your five-year-old self would be filled with excitement and awe and wonder and gratitude, like, oh my gosh, I have all of this power. That's basically what Romans 8 is saying here. We have access to the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And this knowledge should give us confidence that we have what we need to face the challenges of our day-to-day lives. So the first thing Romans 8 tells us about our identity is that we are equipped. The text goes on to say, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The next thing we learn about our identities, our identities, is that we are children of God. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. The word adoption here doesn't quite capture the power behind the statement. The Greek word is... Huothesius, I think I said it right. Um, And then huos means son or anyone sharing the same nature as their father. And tethemi means to place or to set. So really what it's saying is he placed you as his child. He was intentional in giving you this title and calling you his. And as God's children, it also means that we are called to share in the same nature as our father. And then lastly, we are co-heirs with Christ. So throughout the Bible, Jesus is described as sitting at the right hand of the Father, a a high honor. Um, So you can imagine how great it is to be called a co-heir, not a sub-heir, but someone who's sharing an inheritance. And the person that we share this inheritance with is worthy of the title of heir. I was thinking about this, and I was like, we're not in a Game of Thrones episode. Any any Game of Thrones fans? Thank you, Lizzie. We are not, our co-heir is not chilling at a banquet while we're off in the north, guarding the wall, fighting the frozen zombies. That is not happening. Um, Jesus knew suffering. He knew what it meant um, to, to deal with pain, and he chose it. He chose to enter this broken world and offer us a path outside of it into a perfect eternity with him. That, unfortunately, means that we, too, will know suffering. That's part of the package of being a co-heir with Christ. Sometimes that dark cloud comes back, but it won't be there when we enter into eternity with Christ after death. And so now um, that we know who we are called to be, I'm going to take these last five to ten minutes to talk about how we can enter into this identity. How do we run to God? The first thing that we do is we identify the parts of the flesh that are governing our minds. We already did some of this work earlier when we talked about success, love, worth. But I want to emphasize two things here. This is deep work. 
that might require the assistance of a therapist, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a therapist, but it definitely requires community. Why do I say that? Because I needed both of them for my own journey. It's hard to sit with the toxic patterns birthed from pain or from trauma. I spent last weekend at the best retreat ever, so great. Uh, if anyone ever wants to do the school of formation, talk to me, it's amazing. Um, but I kept telling people that it felt like I was, I had just gotten a massage. And all I had done was sit in a very um, cross-filled room with Jesus by, by myself. But on my way to the retreat, I almost had a panic attack. I was crying. I felt like there was pain in my chest because I was so afraid of meeting with God. I was so angry at him. My flesh idea that I'm struggling with uh, or that I had struggled with and governed my mind is that God was a cruel God. He was waiting for me to mess up. He's waiting to punish me. He was the supposed father who allowed generational trauma, spiritual abuse, sexual assault to happen in my life uh, and in the life of my family. And some of you might be here with me, and I don't want to rush your healing process um, with what I'm about to say next. But on that retreat, for me, it was the first time in years that I recognized these thoughts for what they were, and they were lies. I was overwhelmed by the love that God has for me in the midst of this broken world that also brings him pain because it's not what he intended for me as his child. And you might not be there yet. It took me a year with a Christian therapist, eight months in community at the school of formation to unpack just one of my boxes. I have many more. But I do encourage you to start. This is a tool that I learned um, at the school that I mentioned. And we looked at when we went through emotionally healthy spirituality. The idea is uh, we're like icebergs. I think it's the next slide. Thank you. Um, we only show a small part of us, but there is so much under the surface. And Pete Scazzaro <laughs> has a wonderful quote that says, we can't change, or better said, invite God to change us when we're unaware and do not see the truth. One way we can further see our truths is by asking ourselves these questions, and that's on the next slide. What am I mad about? What am I anxious about? What am I sad about? And what am I glad about? And the key here is to invite God to sit with you while you answer these questions. Meditate with him, pray to him, talk to him, even if you're mad at him. The second thing is that this work is done in the freedom of a life without judgment, but not without sentence. And what I mean by that is, uh, let's go back to my trainer. She's constantly encouraging me to do better, even though I worry that one day she's gonna get tired of me not listening to any of her wisdom and fire me as a client. Um, but the thing is, she never does get tired. She's always my cheerleader. But as much as she cheers me on, if I don't put in the work, I don't get to enter into this life of fitness, I don't get the gains, I don't get to look muscular. Um, because I don't follow anything that she tells me to do. But similarly, our God is a loving father who's actually not waiting to throw thunderbolts at us when we make a mistake. But if we don't put in the work, we don't get to enter into the promise of an eternity without condemnation. So how do we put in the work? We submit to the law of God. We surrender to God's law. Uh, and to submit means to obey. We must obey what God says in his word which means we've got to know what's in his word. 
which is why community is so important because his word can be so confusing sometimes. So that's my community group plug. Um, we haven't talked about it yet. They're ending right now, but come summer, you should join. Um, and then lastly, I promise I'm gonna end. Romans 8 says, live in accordance with the spirit. Here's what the text says. Simply embrace what the spirit, yeah, we're gonna start there, my bad. Simply embrace what the spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's actions in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Embrace what God is doing in your life. Don't try and do it on your own and trust in what God is doing. It sounds simple, but it's so difficult. And I'm about to end so our wonderful band can start coming up. Um, but I do want to end by issuing a challenge. You can close your eyes if you like. I'm just about to pray and reflect. Can you think of one step you can take today to run towards God? Can you schedule a journal session where you answer the four questions that I mentioned earlier? Maybe you can sign up for Alpha or a community group this summer. Can you come up for prayer at the end of the service? As I was preparing to speak today, I um, found it funny that we spent two weeks of welcoming everyone into this community, and I kick off identity formation by talking about the flesh and all the things that aren't welcome. But the reality is, while you are always welcome before God, parts of you shouldn't feel like a welcome addition to your life. They're not serving you. But don't let shame or judgment keep you from what God is wanting to process in your life. We're all broken here. We all have parts that aren't welcome, which means we can do this together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we humbly and honestly come before you to ask, what do you want to do with us this season? What is our next step look like? God, um, it is hard to consider you as our good father sometimes when all we see are dark clouds around us, around our families, patterns, generational traumas, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. May your magnificent wind come and clear the air so we can see more clearly the plan that you have before us, a plan for our healing, a plan for our good, and a plan for an eternity with you, Lord, that is absent of these dark clouds. Lord, we thank you. We give you all the glory and all the honor.